Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The book of Hebrews will begin with a focus on the superior ministry of Jesus, and it doesn't begin with an introduction, and it doesn't begin with a salutation. It goes right into what it wants to talk about. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. He wants you to go right before the throne of Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. You know, the question is often asked, which religion is true and which religion is right? And the book of Hebrews makes the bold assertion, not about the superiority of any given religion, but rather about the superiority of Christ, that Jesus is superior and he is superior over religion and he's superior over angels and superior over Moses and and priests and sanctuaries and the book of Hebrews doesn't deny the old revelation or the old covenant or even the old sacrifices or the old sanctuary but rather it affirms testifies to the supremacy of the life and the death and the sacrifice of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the revelation of Jesus And how Jesus gives us a better covenant and a better sacrifice. Because Jesus is eternal and complete. And so the old revelation and the old covenant revealed things about God. And it did reveal things about sin. And it revealed things about salvation. But Jesus comes and defeats the power of death and sin and evil. He comes in the flesh. He knows our weakness. He provides us with grace to be faithful to him. And in chapter 4 verse 5 we have almost that reoccurring statement where in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 5 it says, and again in this place they shall not enter my rest. There's a group of people who struggling and striving to enter into rest, never find it because they don't find rest in Jesus. And so, the author of Hebrews is one of the great mysteries for Bible teachers. Some have suggested that Paul wrote the book, or Barnabas wrote the book, or that Paul and Barnabas wrote it together. Other suggestions have included Apollos and Silas. Even Priscilla and Aquila have been suggested. Paul in his letters often appeals to his apostolic authority. But in this letter, the author appeals to others who were eyewitnesses 
of Jesus' ministry in chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? And so... Ryrie, in his introduction to the book of Hebrews, writes, quote, It's safest to say, as did the theologian Origen in the third century, that the only person who knows who wrote the Hebrews is the person who wrote it in God. <laughs> and so it doesn't really help us to try and figure out who wrote it. But let me just give you at least one tiny insight. Whoever wrote it was probably a Hellenistic Jew. That means he was a Greek-speaking Jew who understood Judaism and understood what was going on in the first century and who understood the diaspora. That means the disbursement of the Jews throughout the Mediterranean. And by the way, who were the original recipients of the letter? Well, it would appear that they're Jewish people, hence the name. The epistle to the Hebrews. Now whether or not these are some of them Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. Or whether they're Jews who live in the Galilee or live in Judea. Whoever they are, the writer is going to make constant attestation. Or he's going to constantly be citing the Old Testament and, and the Levitical worship. So are these Jews in the Levant or that area of, of the Middle East that would occupy present day Israel and Lebanon and Syria and Jordan? Or are these Jews who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire? Or are these Jews in Italy in general and Rome specifically? Are these Jews who are believers in Jesus? And we have every reason to believe that they are because the writer refers to them as holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly call in, in chapter 3, verse 1. Whoever they are and wherever they are, the author of this book says, I'm writing a letter of instruction and exhortation in chapter 13, verse 22. Brought on by the fact that some of them were considering abandoning the faith and returning to Judaism. It would appear that whoever he's writing to are coming to grips with the fact that they're under constant pain and struggle and affliction and terror. And that this constant pain and struggle and affliction is causing some of them to think, I was better off as a Jew. You see, in the first century, Judaism was recognized as a so-called authorized religion of Rome, and Christianity was not authorized. And so because of the pain, and because of the problems, and because of the hurt, and because of the constant pressure, some of them were thinking, I'm going to go back to Judaism. 
And some of you might be thinking, well, but that, you know, I'm not a former Jew who's worried or about returning to Judaism, but guess what? We live in a world and we live in a time when a lot of people are constantly wondering whether or not they should go back to their old way of living. Your problem might not be re- returning to Judaism. It might be returning to something else, a, a religious tradition that you grew up in and rituals and those kinds of formal things, but it might be something way darker. It might be a return to doubt or unbelief and emptiness and darkness and pain and addiction. But the instruction and the exhortation is going to be for everyone who's ever considered, I wonder if I should go back to the old life that I used to live. The author of Hebrews is going to argue that the return to first century Judaism isn't an option. The book isn't simply an apologetic for the superiority of Jesus and the gospel of grace, but rather for the person who considers returning to Judaism, who says, I'm going to return to Judaism to avoid persecution, or I'm going to return to Judaism because that's my personal choice. For the person who wants to return to something other than Jesus because they think that they're going to find peace and rest in something other than Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is going to say, be prepared to be disappointed. Now, the letter appears to have been written sometime in the decade of the 60s, prior to the destruction of the Jewish temple by the Romans. The book is quoted by Clement around circa 95, and because there's no description or reference to the destruction of the temple by the author, which would have made sense since the author is making the point that the Old Testament sacrificial system's demise is going to argue persuasively for the superiority of Jesus by if it was written sometime after 78 AD, the Jewish sacrificial system would have already been gone because the Romans would have already destroyed the the temple. So the author wants to convince the person who's tormented by fear or tormented by persecution or doubt, who grew up as an observant Jew, who's wondering whether or not they can abandon Jesus as God's Messiah and embrace Judaism, they are neglecting to remember what Paul himself said when he said there is no other name given under heaven whereby people must be saved. There isn't two choices. It isn't like, well, I can choose Judaism in order to be saved or I can choose to Christianity. And Paul says no, no elsewhere. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews also says no. In the first century, Judaism, like I said, was protected. Christianity was not. And imagine, and some of you already don't have to imagine very hard. Imagine you're rejected by your family because of Jesus. You're rejected by your friends because of Jesus. You lose your job because of Jesus because you're going to a place and they say, I'm so sorry, but you can't talk about Jesus here. Imagine that you've been betrayed by your own people or by your own culture. Imagine that you've been banned from the synagogue. You've been denied employment. You've been denied family support. And so all of the support systems that you used to have in your life are now gone, gone, gone. This is similar to what's taking place right at this very moment. 
Saeed Abedinius finds himself in an Iranian prison because he decided that he was going to go back to Iran and he was going to minister to his family and he was going to minister to his friends and he was going to provide support and encouragement to the Christians who are holding on for dear life. And he's arrested and he's incarcerated and he's tried as a traitor because he's grown up in a Muslim home and he has been exposed to Islam's teachings and now they say to him, you must return to Islam. And this is a problem not just for hundreds, not just for thousands, but now tens of thousands of people who are being put pressure to return to Islam or in India where you've grown up in a Hindu tradition and there is constant pressure to return to Hinduism. And some of you, like me, may have grown up in a religious tradition like Roman Catholicism, where, again, growing up in that tradition, there is a constant pressure on the part of some people in your family who beckon you to return to your religious roots. The author of the book of Hebrews encourages his readers in the faith But it's faith in Christ. It's confidence in Jesus, in perseverance, and in discipleship. And we're called to endure persecution and suffering and press forward in our faith and in our confidence in the Lord Jesus because we're going to spend eternity with God because of Jesus, because of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. In the history and the economy of God's plan. He allows people to experience sometimes difficulty and tragedy and setback and then provides examples for us to follow. And so the book will include instruction in chapter 1 all the way to chapter 10. Exhortation in chapter 10 verse 19 all the way to the end of the book in chapter 13 verse 25. The book is dedicated to the superior person of Jesus and the superior life of Jesus. Superior because Jesus is the son of God and the son of man. Superior in institution because Jesus is the superior priest. Superior in life because Jesus is the way to God. And so the writer is going to use words like better and blood and faith and sacrifice and high priest and covenant and son and let us and ministry and eternal and partaker and heaven. These are the words that you're going to hear over and over and over again throughout the book. As a matter of fact, the phrase better and better than appears 13 times. It's repeated in a couple of places, but it says Jesus is better than the prophets in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Jesus is better than angels in chapter 1, verse 4 to chapter 2, verse 18. Jesus is better than Moses in chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Better than Joshua, chapter 4, verse 1 through 13. Better high priest, chapter 4, verse 14 to chapter 6. Better than Abraham, chapter 6, verse 13. Better than Melchizedek, chapter 7, verse 1 through 10. Better than Aaron and the priest, chapter 7, verse 11. Better than the sacrifices, chapter 8, verse 7. Do you get the idea that Jesus is better? And the writer of Hebrews invites the reader, don't be afraid. 
Be informed. Don't be afraid. Be informed. Jesus is so much better in verse 4. As a matter of fact, it says, having become so much better than angels in verse 4. Jesus gives us better things in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 9. A better person in chapter 7 verse 7. A better hope in chapter 7 verse 19. A better covenant in chapter 7 verse 22. He is a better mediator. He gives better promises in Hebrews 8 6. Jesus purifies us with a better sacrifice in chapter 9 verse 23. We receive a better possession In chapter 10, verse 34, you know what that possession is? Heaven. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Jesus provides you with heaven, which of course brings a better resurrection in chapter 11, verse 35. And so, having said all of that, look at verse 1. God, who at various times And in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. The first three words in the original language. Polymeros. Chi. Polytropos. Poly means many. Meros means parts. In many parts. And then polytropos, you know, poly means many. Tropos means ways. And so it means many parts, many ways. What is the writer saying? In the Old Testament, God revealed himself to the fathers through the prophets. In the New Testament, God reveals himself through his Messiah. And so the revelation of God in times past, here's the point that the passage is making. God was speaking. God was speaking in bits and pieces and portions and prophecies. And you know what? When I was reading this passage, you know what it made me think of? Since we live in a, in a, in a culture, in a society where most people have a cell phone, have you ever had someone call you and they go, Hello, are you there? <laughs> And you hear a word, and then you hear another word, and you hear a sentence, and you're cutting in, and you're cutting out, and you're going, wait, wait, you know what, I'm in a place where I'm not getting reception. You're you're not coming through. And so the the revelation in times past was, was given in bits, and pieces, and portions, and prophecies. No singular prophet received the entire revelation of God, or the total prophetic message. Not Moses, not Elijah, not Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, not David. There were things that were given to Moses and there were things that were given to Isaiah and there were things that were given to David. And all of a sudden, like pieces of a, of a puzzle or a painting where it's paint by the numbers... And you start filling in the blanks and all of a sudden the picture starts to take shape. The Lord spoke to the prophets in dreams and visions and symbols and circumstances. And sometimes God would speak 
in an audible, unmistakable communication. And in those communications that he gave, they pointed to the Lord Jesus. There was a picture of a of a Messiah who was coming, who would be born of a virgin, who would be born of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. There were bits and pieces of prophecies of where he would be born and, and what he would say and what he would do. And the Bible's testimony is that God has spoken. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke. For the person who says God has been silent and he doesn't have anything to say. The Bible says that's not true. God has revealed himself through nature, the world in which we live. God testifies about his identity, his attributes, his character, his majesty, his power, his creativity. God's speech can be found in God's creation. The Bible says day unto day utters speech and night under night continues to speak. It's the psalmist's way of saying, open your eyes and look around at everything around you and how it has something to say about the glory, the power, the majesty of God. God's speech can be found in God's creation, but also in, in man's conscience. The human conscience provides an inner witness of our duty to God. And laws point to a lawgiver, a cosmic standard of justice. There's something inside of each human being that longs for justice. You don't have to teach a child to say, that's not fair. They don't have to have advanced degree in law to understand equity and fairness. And so, religion, even false religion, testifies to the need for human beings to worship. There's something inside of a human being that understands that there's something bigger than self. And there's a constant question. God, if you're there, then how can I know you? And how can I be acceptable to you? So did God appoint special servants to serve in the capacity of spokespeople for God? The answer is yes. Human beings with messages from God. Did those messages include how we can be acceptable to God and live for God and please God? The message came through, but in bits and pieces. And the testimony of the scriptures is that God did, in fact, entrust his message to faithful men and women throughout human history. And the writer of Hebrews doesn't expect the reader to resist or reject the scriptures or the testimony that God did, in fact, speak to human beings. The Jews were not ignorant of their own law and their own history and their own prophecy. But in verse 2, look what it says. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So how is Jesus better than the prophets? Well, he's better in his person and he's better in his message. The writer says that Jesus is God's son. 
has in these last days spoken to us by his son. The Greek reads in weo or in weos. It literally means has in these last days spoken to us in a son. What does that mean? The emphasis in the text is on the nature and the character. So when it says he's spoken to us in these last days in a son, the the point that the passage is making is that God is making a personal revelation, an unfiltered revelation. Previous revelations were in prophecies. They were in types. They were in symbols. They were impersonal. And so just like the New Testament writer says, when Jesus gives the illustration how God sent servants into the vineyard and and the religious leader said, this is the son. He's the heir. We're going to kill him. At the very last, God sends his son. God sends his son a personal revelation of a perfect person, only a perfect personal person can provide a perfect revelation. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. And this is part of the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that God has sent not a message that's in bits and pieces, in crumbs, but God's going to give a full, final message Jesus is God's full, final, once for all, speech, communication. Has the Lord revealed all things through Christ? Well, in one sense, the answer is yes. There is no second message. There's no future message. There's no additional message. It isn't like the Old Testament was part one and the New Testament is part two. And then there's a part three that's coming up from our Mormon friends or from our Jehovah's Witness friends or from our Muslim friends. The Lord has revealed all things. In Christ we know all things. In what sense? In the sense that it's necessary to be saved and justified and sanctified and glorified. Does the world await future information? And I think that the answer is yes. Does the world await future illumination about this person, Jesus, our marvelous Savior and his wonderful salvation? I think that the answer is yes. Does the world await further revelation concerning God's plan of salvation? And the answer is no. The answer is no. That's right, Lord. Thanks for confirming that. (laughs) The Bible says, let two or three witnesses confirm every word. Sorry, Mormons. Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. Sorry, so-called Christians who think that there's something more. There's something more than Jesus. There's something more than Jesus. That, that if, you, if we could just be a part of something more than Jesus, if we could be a part of a secret society, if we could just have secret information. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I heard from my father. All things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. What does that mean? It means that everything that the Father let the Son know, the Son let the disciples know, 
By the way, does Jesus tell us everything we want to know? No, probably not. Did Jesus tell us everything that we need to know? According to John 15, the answer is yes. If Jesus has told us all things that he heard from his Father, there's not some secret thing reserved for some spiritual elite. John declared in John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The testimony of Jesus in John 14, 9 is, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus speaks. Now, this is maybe one of the most important things that I'm going to say throughout our entire study in the book of Hebrews. Jesus speaks. Not simply for God, but as God. Jesus speaks, not simply on God's behalf. S.D. Gordon said, quote, Jesus was God spelling himself out in language humanity could understand, unquote. And that's exactly right. When people want to know, what's God like? What's God like in his character? What's God like in his majesty, in his justice, in his compassion? How does God really think about people and things and circumstances? How does God really think about me? And the revelation of the person of Jesus gives us the answer. And so Jesus is the supreme heir. Look at verse 2 at the end of the verse. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. The writer of Hebrews gives Jesus infinite privileges. Jesus is the heir of all things. In what sense? The universe belongs to him by divine right. By divine appointment. He will rule. He will reign over all things and everyone. The Son is greater than all the prophets. The Son's message is greater than the sum and the substance of the collective message given. This is why Jesus, with complete confidence, could say in the New Testament, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have life, but they are those which testify of me. Jesus' testimony concerning himself is that everything that was ever written in the Old Testament was written about him. And so Jesus is superior to the Jewish prophets in at least seven different ways. Let me just list them quickly and then we're going to... Look at them rather quickly. Number one, Jesus, not the prophets, are the heir of all things. This is the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. Jesus is going to get everything, not the prophets. Number two, Jesus, not the prophets, was the instrument that God used to make the universe. Number three, Jesus, not the prophets, radiates divine glory and possesses God's exact nature. Number four, Jesus, not the prophets, upholds and preserves the material universe. Number five, Jesus, not the prophets, makes purification and forgiveness possible. In other words, the sum and the substance of everything that the prophets have ever said can save no one. And Jesus can save Everyone. And number six, Jesus and not the prophets 
did what no prophet would dare to do. Sit down on the right hand of God. And number seven, Jesus and not the prophets is greater than angels and has a name that's more excellent than any prophet or all prophets, which is going to be next week. But let's look again at the end of verse two. Jesus, creator and framer of the worlds, through whom also he made the worlds. The writer believes that Jesus made the world, and maintains the world. The writer of Hebrews, when he looks at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and he reads the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he thinks of Jesus. The writer believes Jesus made the world, maintains the world. The text reads, toyos, aeonios, literally, through whom also he made The ages. Remember the song? You stay the same through the ages. Your love never changes. Here's what the writer is saying. That before the beginning, Jesus was there. Before the beginning, Jesus was there. Just like it says in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The writer of Hebrews imagines existence coming into existence by the power of Jesus. And then he frames the ages, the idea being that as he makes the world, he frames the, the capacity, if you will, of the, everything in the universe to bring about his full and final will. The way that I would put this is, the writer believes that the actual constitution of the universe and then the development of the successive stages in the universe was made by Jesus. Minimum, it means Jesus initiated this world and every world. Jesus initiated everything that has ever happened in the past, continues to happen in the present, and will happen in the future. And because Jesus is at the beginning and because he designed the beginning and it orchestrates the present and the future, the writer of Hebrews says, he is the one who is superior to religion. And Jesus is the glory of God. Look what it says in verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer piles on the titles. Do you remember when you were a kid and you would play dog pile? You'd knock a kid down, then everyone would jump on him, and then another kid would jump on him, and another kid would jump on him, and another kid would jump on him. The writer of Hebrews presents Jesus, and then he begins to pile on the titles, the express image of God, the sustainer of the universe, the redeemer of all of humanity, the supreme mediator. Do you get this idea that you're dealing with somebody who's amazing? Jesus is the radiance. Look what it says. Who brings the brightness of his glory. Jesus is the radiance or the brightness of God's glory. The exact representation of God's being. The Greek word. Who being the brightness. 
apogasma. It's passive in the sense of reflection, but active in meaning. The writer seems to mean effulgence or radiance. And so it translates the word radiant. When you think about the sun, for instance, someone once said, I see. But the light from the sun gives everyone the opportunity to see. If there was no sun in our solar system, all of us would be blind. The writer is in effect saying that Jesus is the radiance that allows the perception of the reality of God to take place. God's glory is the sum of his attributes, including his awesome presence. God's glory includes his presence, and so God's appearance is so intense, it's like a burning fire, consuming everything that's impure. God's glory is an expression of his identity, his character, and his attributes. And so it says, who being the brightness of his glory, speaking of Jesus, and the express image of his person. The word image is a word that was used in the Greek language to to describe a tool that was used for engraving, or making a stamp, or a seal, or or an impress. Many of you know that I collect coins from the ancient world. And there was a, a, a person in the ancient world called a cellator. It begins with a C. C-E-L-A-T-O-R. And the cellator would take an engraving tool. And they would make an image of Caesar. Or they would make an image of a god or a goddess. Or they would make an image of something in the universe. And during the time of the Greeks and the Romans, this ability to make an engraving was, was raised almost to amazing heights. And so it's the, the writer's way of saying... This is the way that something is recognized. In other words, the engraving means the express image. It is that by which a person or a thing is recognized. Let me help you. When you have children and you open up a book and you see a picture of a chicken, or you see a picture of an egg, or you see a picture of the sun, the moon, the stars. You ask the child, what is that? And they say, a chicken, an egg, the sun, the moon, the stars. In other words, the image becomes the expression of the thing that is recognized. And so the writer is in effect saying, the reason why we can recognize God is because we can recognize Jesus. I don't think that this means that God looks like a person. And some of you might be thinking, well, Jesus is a person and Jesus is God. So doesn't that mean that that God looks like a person? And remember in John chapter 4, Jesus says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is invisible, immortal. How do you see that which is invisible? In order to see something that is invisible, it would have to now take on the characteristic of something that is visible. 
And so the Bible says that Jesus is a human being. He is one person with two natures. This invisible, eternal God takes on a second nature. And so when it says, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. The word person translates a word that isn't normally used for person. It's the word hypostasis. It's even been adopted in theology as a technical term. In the Greek language, it literally meant that which stands under, that which serves as a support, that which provides a foundation. In the ancient world, when you would look at the dirt on the ground, that was the foundation. When you would look at a rock, that is what served as as the foundation. And then it came to literally mean reality or the virtue of a thing or the thing that was made or the essence of a thing. Scholars like Westcott say that Christ is the expression or the essence of God. The writer of Hebrews is basically making the statement Whatever God is, that's what Jesus is. Whatever makes God a self-existent, eternal being, not dependent on anything else for its existence, that's what Jesus is. The writer's saying whatever God is, That's what Jesus is. They share an essence or a nature. So hypostasis, the underlying reality that makes something something, the writer of Hebrews is basically saying this. Jesus resembles God in every way that you can resemble God. If you're from the South like me, sometimes people will say, you favor You favor your mom. You favor your dad. You know that expression. It means that there's some sort of genetic signature inside of you that makes you look like one parent or the other, or you have some attribute of one parent or the other. Jesus resembles the Father in every way. McDonald says, The Son, being God, reveals to man... By his words and ways. Exactly what God is like. And this is exactly what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 and 16. When he says he, speaking of Jesus, is the image, same word, of the invisible God. The firstborn, prototokos, over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And so the scripture says there's two kinds of things. Things that have always existed, and that's God. And things that came into existence, that's everything that's not God. The Bible says God never came into existence. And so when a little kid calls me on my radio program and says, who made God? I say, 
Nobody made God. God is a self-existent being. You see, there's two kinds of things in the universe. A self-existent thing and then everything that depends on the self-existent thing. And they invariably say, I don't understand. I go, how old are you? Seven. I go, I'm 58 and I don't understand. (laughs) How do you comprehend a self-existent being? Let's review. God spoke, verse 1. God has spoken to us by his son, verse 2. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power, verse 3. God spoke. God has spoken to us by his son. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. In Hebrews chapter 11, later on, in verse 3, chapter 11, it says... By faith, we understand that the words were framed by the word of God so that all things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Literally, the ages were prepared, framed in preparation for the succeeding generations. God prepared in time all things for the unfolding of the generations. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. In my lifetime, the largest science experiment ever attempted by human beings has taken place in this generation. They built a large hadron collider under Switzerland. They built a gigantic circle, and in that gigantic circle, they created a particle accelerator that goes near the speed of light so that they can take molecules and atoms and smash them into their constituent parts. Do you know why they do that? Because human beings are hopelessly curious. They want to know, well, what's this made of? And if I split it in half, what's that made of? And if I split that in half, what's it made of? And if I split that in half, and split that in half, and split that in half, and can you come to an infinitesimal, indivisible particle that you can't go any further? And we're still looking. And human beings have asked the question in every generation... How do elements stick together? How do molecules retain their ability to lock the elements into place? How is it that they bond and then they stay bonded? And how do you separate them? And what holds them together? And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus. Well, you would say that. You're a Christian. and Yeah. God of the gaps. And when you don't know the answer, Jesus becomes the answer. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, quite literally, Jesus holds reality together. If for just one moment, the Lord Jesus said, I want all of the molecules and the atoms in your chair to just simply disassemble, they would. Or you, they simply would. Everything that is everything that exists, exists because God created it and because Jesus maintains it. The Bible says that Jesus is the glue that holds existence together, the sustainer. And he holds everything together by the power of his word. Now, I want you to think about that. Jesus is God's speech. 
In the beginning was the word, logos. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Lord Morley said, three things matter in a speech. Who says it? How he says it? And what he says? The writer of Hebrews says, God has spoken. God has spoken to us in Christ. And because God has sent a powerful message in the person of Jesus, it is a speech that is powerful and irrefutable and unforgettable and undeniable and persuasive. And the message, the message, the message, the message, God loves you and wants to forgive your sin. Look at the very next sentence. When he had by himself purged our sins. Think of everything that could possibly be said. Every speech that could possibly be made. Every important statement that could possibly be made. And the writer of Hebrews says, here's Jesus' important. Stay tuned. Ladies and gentlemen, this message now in from God. When he had by himself purged our sins. Jesus died to cleanse our sins. Ephesians 2.13 But now Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And out of all the titles that have been given thus far by the writer of Hebrews. Creator. Sustainer. This is the most amazing title of all. MacDonald writes, in order to create the universe, he only had to speak. In order to maintain the universe, he only has to speak because no moral problem is involved. But in order to put away our sin once for all, he had to die on the cross of Calvary. It's staggering to think that the sovereign Lord would stoop to become the sacrificial lamb. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, as Isaac Watts him says. This is who Jesus is. The one who comes. He doesn't just simply have a final message. He is the final message. Peter reminded the early Jewish believers in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious, with the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And look what it says. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know what that is? That's the place of supreme rest. This isn't the place that's a well-deserved rest after much toil. This is the rest that comes because the work is finished. The work of salvation and redemption is complete. And the right hand of the majesty is the place of honor and privilege. The writer of Hebrews is saying that the triumph of Jesus and the victory of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the salvation of Jesus is complete because God has highly exalted him. And so the right hand becomes the place of power. Again, MacDonald writes, quote, 
in following the pathway of our Lord from creation to Calvary and then to glory, it seems we have quite lost sight of the prophets. Illustrious though they were, they have receded into the shadows. They bore witness to the coming Messiah in Acts 10.43. Now that he has come, they gladly retire from view, unquote. What a powerful thought. What a powerful thought. Think about the, the thought that he's giving. Particularly after all that we've studied. Imagine there is Moses in the shadow pointing you to Jesus. There is Job and Jeremiah pointing you to Jesus. There is Isaiah and Ezekiel pointing you to Jesus. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the sum and the substance of all of the prophets who have ever lived and who have ever spoken want you to understand about who Jesus is. Isn't that amazing? We're grateful for the prophets and the prophecies. But the writer of Hebrews says, but now we see Jesus. Jesus is God's supreme revelation, chapter 1 and 2. Jesus is God's source for creation, chapter 2 and verse 3. Jesus is God's representation for everyone who's curious about God and wants to know what God is like in verse 3. But Jesus is God's purification. For everyone who's a sinner. Everyone who needs to experience forgiveness. And so the book of Hebrews is this powerful portrait of Jesus. And the author wants to convince you. He wants to convince you that Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise that has preceded him. In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. First and second Samuel, you do the math. Jesus is superior to anything that came before him. Because Jesus, and in Jesus we have a better covenant and a better hope and a better sanctuary and a better inheritance. And the supreme and superior mediator, a sinless high priest, a perfect supreme sacrifice. The one, the only, the unrepeatable sacrifice. That provides us permanent, permanent, permanent access to God for everyone who will embrace Him and believe Him. You know, the book of Hebrews is a book about wonder, but it's also a book about warnings. And in the wonder, and in the warnings, the writer is going to try to convince you that there's nothing, no nothing, better than Jesus. There's nothing, no nothing, more satisfying than Jesus. There's nothing, no nothing, that will wash you and cleanse you and keep you and preserve you. God has spoken. God has spoken in his son. And the message. There's love and there's hope and there's forgiveness for every single person who wants it. That's just the first three verses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. How amazing you are, Lord. 
to extend to us an amazing message. Lord, we know that the elements of speech always include a speaker and then a person who can listen. That the elements of communication always include shared understanding. It has to be a message that can be understood and embraced. And the writer of Hebrews has told us that you've spoken a message that can be believed and received and embraced. And so again, Father, I pray for that person, for that man, that woman, who's toyed with the idea of returning to a place of darkness or a place of doubt or to the place of uncertainty, agnosticism, skepticism, A person who says, I don't know. I don't know if the Bible is true. I don't know if Jesus is Lord. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, there would be a powerful awakening that takes place in our hearts as we consider that Jesus is not just who he says he is, but he is exactly what God says he is and what the scripture says he is. Now and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. <clears throat>